Anyway, um, just a couple of disclaimers this morning. Disclaimer number one, um, I haven't preached in a conventional church setting for a year. Um, I preached at Blueprint two weekends ago and um, got in a bit of trouble uh, from my old church, which was quite fun and had a whole lot of fun there, but um, got in trouble with my wife afterwards too, so we're going to try to rein it in today a little bit and um, sort of remember that somewhere in me is Jesus and hopefully he comes out. Um, couple of disclaimers. Firstly, this is not a sermon. Um, I no longer preach sermons. I rant. Um, it's more like I've become more self-aware. I don't think I ever preached. I just ranted. And um, but this is this is a personal therapy session for me today. So just imagine that you're sitting in that chair, and I come into your office, and you say, you know, Brooke, what's going on for you? And I just start vomiting out everything that's in my mind and heart to you, okay? There's a couple of important reasons why we have to frame this as a personal therapy session. Number one is because what I'm about to share with you is totally and definitely my opinion. Now, we've got very good in Christianity of saying, you know, you know, this preacher's going to get up and we pray they bring the word of the Lord. Or, Lord, we pray that when Brooke gets up, he's going. it, it will be the Lord who speaks not Brooke. Well, as those of you who know me will testify to, it's very, very hard not to get Brooke to speak when Brooke opens his mouth (laughs) at any way, shape or form. And I do know a few preachers who manage to allow God to speak through them um, when they open their mouths, but I'm certainly not one of them. So um, those are the disclaimers. So just enjoy the therapy and when you get wrapped up and deep within you, you're going, I so disagree with him. Oh, I just want to grab that microphone off him and say the opposite thing. Just remember, he's in therapy and it'll all be okay. All right? So I've entitled my therapy session, which is a little bit sermon-like, I know, but it needed a title, um, Confessions of a Recovering Christian. I have been, up until this year, I took a preaching fast this year for one year, 12 months, And um, up until this year, I had preached for 15 years. I've preached as far north as Norway. Um, I've preached through Asia, the United States, Mexico. I've preached all over the world. I've preached right down in the the bottoms of Riversdale, down the bottom of the South Island, right up to um, Auckland. And um, I've preached and I've preached and I've preached. I've been in pastoral ministry for 15 years, since I was 17 years old, from the age of 12, my father, who's a pastor, started grooming me for ministry, and um, I would go around with dad from the age of 12, and he'd get up in a setting like this, and I'd get up first and give what testimony I did have at 12 years old, which wasn't a lot, but anyway, he gave a little testimony, or a testimonial is probably more accurate, and so my whole life, in the last 15 years, over half my life has been spent in this sort of setting, um, reflecting on the last 10 years, 10 years ago, uh, I was in youth work in Wellington. I'd come to the Rock Church and I was really, really saddened and concerned about the state of the church. What I saw because of my um, preaching opportunities, I saw that um, people would get up at the front of church, they would say that revival would hit, that 
young people were being saved and a whole bunch of young people were coming into the youth group. But because I preached around all the youth groups in the Wellington region, I realised that all the young people who were coming in were just the young people from the other youth groups that I preached to six months ago and that this revival was just sort of like the sheep moving paddocks, not um, souls being saved. And furthermore, um, I, I noticed that when... When Christians hit 18, there was just this massive exodus of people in church. I mean, it was just like 18 to 25-year-olds, you couldn't find them unless they had found each other and got married and had kids and needed the Christian support. But if they were still single, they were out there. There was nothing in church for them. And so I had this question that I sit with, and and one of my first points I want to give today is that... um, You always have a driving question that is informing the way that you live your life. You may not be aware of the question, but there is always a question informing your life. And right throughout church history, there's always been a question. In fact, if we look at the major changes that have happened in church history, and let's go to one of them, Martin Luther, his question informed his piece of writing, his 95th thesis, where he said, I do not believe any longer that it is by deeds that I am saved. I do not buy into this indulgences theology of the Catholic Church. I don't buy into this idea that I've got to be good enough to get into heaven. What I believe is two things and two things only. I believe that the Bible is, this is what Luther said, I believe the Bible is the absolute authority on all religions. Because at that time, the Catholic Church said the Pope was the absolute authority. So he changed it. He said, I believe the Bible is the absolute authority. And the second thing he said, he said, I believe that faith leads to salvation, not deeds lead to salvation. And hence, this sparked what we know to be the Reformation. Now, since that time... Church has been reforming and going through reformation over and over and over and over again. Now, there's some cynics that say, you know, well, you know, there's now over 30,000 Christian denominations that all believe different stuff. You know, isn't that concerning? Shouldn't we get our doctrine right? I say no. I say that is fantastic. That is an example of the church continually being reformed. And so when I was 22, 10 years ago, at The Rock, watching 18 to 25-year-olds leave churches in droves, the question that I had that was driving my reformation was, how do we change church? Because it's not working. How do we change church? And in that time, at 22, right until this day, one of the major scriptures in my life is Philippians 2.12, which says, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And when God arrested my life at 17, I just simply couldn't be the kind of Christian who just went with the social norm or went with what the prevalent culture in Christianity was. I had to work out my faith in fear and trembling. And at that stage, at 22, in fear and trembling, I was saying, church is just not working for my generation. It's just not working. You know, we heard a preacher here a few weeks ago get up and say that him and his wife had been running down Courtney Place at 6am watching the young people come out of the club. See, that's their church. See, that's what we saw 10 years ago. It's no different today. 
18 to 25-year-olds worshipping the God of alcohol instead, instead of the God of Israel. And, um, and that's what I saw. And so in, in my working out my fear and trembling, I was like, right, we've got to change church. So we planted Blueprint. And some of you were here then and involved in that process. And we started in that cafe on a Saturday night, running Saturday night services for 18 to 25-year-olds. And then with a hiss, a bang and a roar, we went downtown and fitted out a, a venue in Glover Park and um, started this nightclub church on a Saturday night for young people. And why do we all sit in rows? Sitting in rows is boring. Let's sit around cafe tables and let's have an espresso machine and let's have a stage. And why do we only submit this stage to Christians? Can't non-Christians be on this stage too? Let's invite all the artists and and the musicians, and let's invite the you know, the comedians and all the funny Cuba Street people into our services, and let's not just invite them to come, let's invite them to perform, um, which made for a really crazy environment. And, you know, what is this thing with alcohol? And people are so concerned with alcohol. I mean, are people really going to get drunk if we serve alcohol at church? I can tell you they do. <laughs> It's pretty funny when you're preaching, you hear two of your parishioners in the kitchen laughing drunk over a bottle of wine, I tell you. It's, uh... And so for five years, I basically, out of my um, sense of thinking we need to change church, I tried to change it every way I could. I was running church on Thursday, on Saturday, running in a nightclub, got people sitting around tables, got non-Christians on the pulpit instead of Christians, no sermons, no worship at times. No communion, no tithing. Let's just throw it all out. And then let's see what God throws back to us. But what I didn't understand at the time was that there were these internal drivers in me that were subconscious that I wasn't aware of. The first one was disillusionment. That as a pastor's son, if I was really honest, I just don't think the thing works. My thing included. I just don't think it works. I think it's fundamentally broken. Is not having an impact. Is not changing the world. 30 years ago, New Zealand was 5% born again Christian. Do you know what the percentage is today? It is less than that. So in all our efforts and all the millions of dollars and and all the cafe tables and the crazy ideas of Brooke Turner and the blueprints and being the boy wonder and flowing around New Zealand and speaking to the Baptist Union and the Anglican Diocese and the Presbyterian National Conference about how we need to change church and all the ideas. It's meaningless. The other driver I had underneath it all was ego. As I'm sure you were, what, Brooke Turner, ego? Are you serious? It's the most humble man I've ever seen. (laughs) The need to be important myself, the need for my life to matter, that's ego. It's not ego I want to be seen. I'd love to have like a, a photo on my website with my wife with her arm around my shoulder and photoshopped in front of our church. No, it's not that at all. That makes me puke. But the idea of feeling important... She doesn't make me puke. She absolutely turns me on. But the idea, 
of being important like that. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about feeling like my life is worth something. That's ego. So these drivers, and so I went through and for five years just tried to do church different ways, different ways, different ways. And looking back, what I realized was I put a different dress on the girl, you know? Put a different dress on the body, different dress on the bride. Oh, that dress doesn't work. Let's take that off. Let's put this dress on. That dress doesn't work. Oh, look at all those dresses over there. Man, I hate those dresses. That kind of fashion really pisses me off, you know? Like Christians who are into that kind of fashion... They're not Christians at all. Because that's how we judge other churches, don't we? We're not judging actually the body. We're not judging the bride. We're judging the dress. We're judging the dressing. And all I was doing was putting different dresses on. And, um, and so after five years, I was completely spent. You know, my wardrobe had been completely utilized. There was nothing in the wardrobe. And so then I was like, man, I just need to hand over this church. And what I realized in that sense as well was I had all these noble ideas that, you know, if, that my way of leading and my way of pastoring, that people would be more fulfilled with my leadership and that I wouldn't hurt people and all these leaders in church that hurt people. There would be no carnage or no backlash from Brooke Turner's leadership. Are you serious? Come follow me and you'll never be hurt again. And after five years, just like this barrage of bombings of my mouth over people and my actions and my manipulation and the way I made them serve me instead of God. And so I realized I had the wrong question. (laughs) It's quite a good realization to have, actually. Okay, so if the question isn't how do we change church, then what is the question? And so what it led me to is like, oh man, you know. Oh, and that's the other thing. That One of the things that led to this question was you get to a certain point as a leader in a church situation where the culture of the people take over the culture of leadership. So more and more people come in. You've got this idea of your ethos, your heart, what you want it to be. But as more and more people are attracted to you as the successful model, then the culture of the house determines the culture of the house. And I just got really frustrated with that because here I was trying to reach 18 to 25-year-olds who didn't know Jesus, and all the 18 to 25-year-olds from all the churches just came for a bit of entertainment. And then they wanted to meet up with me and talk about how they're sleeping with their girlfriend or they got drunk or they had a pornography addiction or they had struggled with their eating disorders and stuff. And I was like... You people were Christians. Like, didn't Jesus transform you at some point? I thought my idea of pastoral ministry was Jesus transforms you and then we go change something out there together. But all my time was spent trying to help these people. And so that led me to another question. Well, I don't want to do that. I'm not a pastor. I've watched my dad be a pastor. I don't want that. So what do I want to do? I want to transform society. My question is, how do we change society? Society is the problem. Society oppresses people. Society is pagan. And it's without Christ. And we need to get out there. We need to do the real mission. Because other people aren't doing the real mission. So with a hop, step and a jump, I jumped into zeal. And um, we started trying to transform the lives of young people uh, in Wellington. And then as it went on around the country... And um, 
And as, as I started to look at how do we transform society, I started studying the great reformers. Martin Luther King Jr. What a man. You know, he gets a call from a close friend of Rosa Parks after the bus incident and says, hey, Martin, we want to run a rally at your house. And then we want to run a rally at your church. And he accepts it. And, and out of the seeds of two or three African Americans, the civil rights movement is born that sweeps the world by storm and transforms the racial and cultural landscape of the United States. Start reading about this man and Nelson Mandela and the great jubilee of 1994 where he allows all those who have have, um, uh, committed crimes under apartheid to come before the Supreme Court in South Africa and be pardoned. You know, men like this... William Wilberforce, you know, the great abolitionist and what he did to see, um, you know, that, that whole world of Great Britain with slavery reformed and how the Hobson brothers drafted the, verse, the first copy of the Treaty of Waitangi in his living room, that from Marsden to the Hobsons, they were clapping us, they came from Wilberforce and how that influenced the origins of our country and the fact that when the British arrived here they didn't shoot Māori on sight, but they sought to negotiate with them as, as humans because of what Wilberforce had done. And studying this, we need to change society. We can do it again. Others have done it. And, um, but there were some other subconscious drivers. They were real pain, hey? <laughs> don't you wish that God could reveal to you the things that you don't know inside yourself before you know them in hindsight? And so with this driver, how do we transform society? And, don't, and I mean, we were transforming society. We're seeing pee addicts and crack addicts and mongrel mob kids and girls who were prostituting themselves in Newtown and um, all over the place, kids coming to know Jesus through the work of zeal. Awesome. But the drivers underneath it was still this thing of ego, my search for meaning and significance. I don't feel like my life matters. When I sit down, when I lay my head down at night, I just don't feel full. I feel empty. And I'm spending myself for other people, putting myself into debt for the debtors and the discontent and the destitute, but I'm not full. Well, I thought if you give your life away, you meant to get it back, but that's not what I was experiencing. I wasn't finding significance in transforming society. And the other thing that, the other internal driver that I had was just this idea that I was doing real mission. No one else is doing real mission. The church is definitely not doing real mission. This is what I was thinking. Half of the Christian movements out there aren't doing real mission. In fact, most of them are just wasting all the Christian money that could reform society. What is the church doing? You know, We want to get up in arms about the gay marriage legislation, but none of us are going to the government and saying, hey, we take 762 refugees a year. The United Christian Churches of New Zealand want to take 1,000. We'll house them, give them jobs, put their kids in, ch- in daycare and school and bring them to our services. And as a United Christian Church, we want to tell the national government of New Zealand that we care for the refugees and it is atrocious that our country 
only takes 760 odd of them a year. You know, that sort of stuff messed with my head. Why aren't we just seeing these logical things that we could do that would actually elevate the United Church to a place of real power? Um, but it came from the sense of me, well, I'm doing the real mission. You know, if someone had given me a microphone after the February earthquake, I would have said whether it was God or not. Yes, it would have been my opinion, but I would have got up there and said something. The fact that we said nothing, I mean, what are these leaders doing? Where are they? Got authority on their pulpit, but nothing at government. You know, it was a judgment in me, a contempt for my own kind. I spent myself, you know, sort of meditating on Matthew 25 and Luke 19 and Isaiah 58 and these scriptures, and they were the lifeblood of what Christianity meant. And I told myself that contributing to this kind of change would fill me up. But many times I arrived home so empty that my family and marriage suffered from my addiction to social reform. Wasn't loving my wife the way I was meant to love her or my firstborn child the way I was meant to love her. Matthew sixteen twenty six. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world but forfeit his soul. What does it profit a man to transform society but lose his soul? You know, J. Edgar, he, um, he sealed away the FBI's documentations on Martin Luther King Jr. until the year 2030. But there's widespread speculation that King had an addiction to white prostitutes that every city he went into, he slept with white women. That actually there was a disdain in him for African-American women. It would be very interesting to see in 2030 if if that speculation is actually in the FBI file, how will the world's view change of King? Will they take away the plaque in Washington? I don't know Martin Luther King Jr.'s son. Never heard of him. Don't know his wife's name. In all my study of him, couldn't find anything about his family or his grandchildren. I do know that Billy Graham holidayed with him for a few years. I know that Billy and his wife saw the vulnerability of the man and were trying to help him. I know that. I recently read an article from Nelson Mandela's daughter. She's talking about what it's like to grow up being Mandela's daughter. She's saying whenever they got a letter from Mandela to the family for the 27 years that he was away the letter would be about what needed to change in the nation. It was a political letter written to a family. Now with her father out and the fact that mum and dad didn't get on so they got a divorce, the striking question left in Mandela's daughter's heart where she left this article was, I know my father loves South Africa. I'm just not sure if he loves me. But 
But what about Wilberforce, bro? Come on, Wilberforce, you know, amazing grace, how sweet the sound, save the rich like me. Well, Wilberforce was addicted to opium. He punished his body with a drug that today this man wouldn't be seen dead on a pulpit anywhere. So changing society has quite a grand cost if it's your number one goal in life. If you'll spend yourself for it, no matter what the cost. Now, I grew up in the Christianity that said, you know, if you get out there and serve others, you'll be filled up yourself. You know what? I got out there and served others till I was hospitalized and then got up again and served others till I was hospitalized and then got up again and served others till I was hospitalized. And I got up at 6 a.m. every morning and went to bed at 10 o'clock every night and did it over and over and over again, spending myself and choosing not to live my life for money and choosing not to holiday and choosing not to have weekends with my family and choosing to give myself seven days a week. It didn't give anything back. And you know, what I realized in that question, in those two questions, can I change church? Well, we need to change church or we need to change society. Is that after 10 years, I'm actually just not that changed. So I was trying to change everything else, but I'm just not that changed myself. Don't get me wrong, I've had supernatural experiences of God. I've seen angels three times. I've been paralyzed under the power of God four times in the last ten years. I see visions, I have dreams, I feel the tangible power of the Holy Spirit come upon me, but you know what? I'm just not that changed. I'm just not that changed. And the question that I am at now is, how can God change me? And let me tell you what I know. I know that Peter lived with Jesus Christ for three and a half years. I know that he's the only man we know of outside of Jesus who walked on water. I know that he was sent out with the 70 and he healed the sick. I know that he declared that Jesus was the Son of God. Some say, I'm John. Say some, some say, I'm Elijah. Who do you say I am? You're the Son of God. I know that he was one of the closest disciples to Jesus of the twelve. I know that Jesus said, your name shall be Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church. I also know that after three and a half years of living eating, sleeping, being with Jesus, at the end of it when Jesus died, Peter just went back to being a fisherman. You think you can come to the rock and get close to the leaders or get close to me and or I get close to Greg or whoever I think is the super Jesus person and just hang with them for three and a half years, you think, You think when they go, you're that changed? You really think you're that changed? Or you're just wearing a dress like the dress I put on Blueprint? 
Am I just been wearing a dress like the dress I put on Blueprint? Because Peter was with the Son of God for three and a half years, and at the end of it, he just went back to being a fisherman. Oh, well, the uh, revolution's over. Reform is gone. What do I know how to do? It was cool doing that preaching thing. Enjoyed that church. Um, really liked it when he got the whip in the temple. Um, I can fish. Let's go back. Oh, I wonder if my dad will lend me one of his boats. I sold my boat. <laughs> Gave the money to the poor. Stink. <laughs> the only thing that transformed Peter was when the Holy Spirit came upon his life. And I'm not talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I'm just not talking about that. I speak in tongues. I'm still not that changed. I'm talking about a moment that Peter had that no one can control, not you or me, not Peter. Only God. And I'm convinced of this. You can come to church, whether it's this church, another church, the cool church, the stink church, community church, the evangelistic church, the Holy Spirit church, the pastoral church, the counseling church, the truth coaching church, whatever the heck church you want to go to. You can be involved in mission, aid work, environmental work, youth work, work for the orphans, work generating food, you can get into politics, you can do every kind of mission you want. You can do all of those things and remain unchanged. The only thing that will change you is the Holy Spirit. And this is what I understand. I'm just not that changed. And I'm not going to raise my hand and worship and act like God has transformed my life when he hasn't. God has influenced my life. No doubt about it. You know, Mike Hewitson has significantly influenced my life. He's one of my mentors in my life. And I would say, as a result of knowing Mike, I am a better Christian. I am a better man of God. But Mike hasn't transformed me. See? I'm talking about transformation. I'm talking about absolute change. I'm talking about when you see a person, they have to wear a veil over their face because the glory of God is too shining for you to look upon them. I'm talking about the person who walks down the street and their shadow heals people without them having to pray for them. I'm talking about the person who walks downstairs from their bedroom and sees the devil sitting in their rocking chair and says, oh, it's just you, and walks back upstairs and goes to sleep, as Smith Wigglesworth did. I'm talking about the guys who really did it. I'm talking about the woman who really got it. And you know what? I just think they're fewer numbers. And I wonder if that scripture, render your hearts, not your garments, God's like, man, can you just get your garments off? I mean, are you that changed? Do you just come with all this positivity? Like, you could leave today positive, right? I could have given you a whole message of faith. In fact, I was really tempted not to preach this message and preach another one about faith. Just the warm, fuzzy, fuzzy faith, what faith can do, you know? And I've seen faith do amazing things. In faith, I've raised a million dollars this year. I didn't imagine as a 15-year-old I'd raise a million dollars in faith. You know what? Who cares? It's money, it's paper, it's nothing. And even the mission that it builds is nothing. 
I'm unchanged. So the question I've got is, how can God change me? Not like God wants to change you. Oh, isn't it a great answer? Okay, Lord, let's have an altar call now. All of you can come up the front here. And, but remember, everyone needs to close their eyes. And you need to put up your hand. We need to be polite about this. You can all come up the front here and I'll lay hands on you. And as the man of God, the Holy Spirit of me will come on you and you'll be completely transformed. Completely transformed. Oh, please. I've watched a woman's face change into a man's face as she is delivered of a demon. I've seen the most extraordinary supernatural acts of God you could possibly imagine. And my life is still not that changed. I've had men of God from America and from England and from all over the world laid hands on me and pass over their anointing or the Holy Spirit or whatever it is our social construct does. You know? I've had all of that stuff. I've had men point me out in audiences and say, God wants your life and pull me forward and read my life like a book and tell me my life when they didn't know it. And you know what? At the end of the day, it didn't make me a better husband. Didn't make me a better pastor. Didn't make me pray more. Didn't make me connect with God more. And even after all this time, still now, my wife and I were about to go to Auckland. We're like, what, God, what are you saying? <laughs> well, hang on a minute. I've been preaching for 15 years. I've been doing this stuff. Like, Surely God could just be like, this is the way I speak. He's just not like that. It's like a Rubik's Cube. Oh, I've got the red down. Oh, hang on. No, the red's not together anymore. What happened? Yesterday it was together. It's not about changing church. Stay in the church you're in. It's not about changing society. It's about God changing you. And this is what I know. If God can actually change Brooke Turner, if it can actually happen, if I can be transformed from darkness to light like Peter was at Pentecost, the church has changed. Because I am the church. And society has changed. Because I am society. But I'm not going to pretend that I'm changed when I'm not. I will give glory to God for the way he's influenced me, for the way he's mentored me, for the way he's refined me. But I'm not going to pretend I'm transformed when I'm not. I'm just not going to pretend anymore. And so... Part one of this therapy session is I've realized it's not about changing church. It's not about changing society. It's about God changing me and I can't do it. No preacher can do it. No prophecy can do it. No transference on the laying on of hands can do that transformation. Yes, it can heal you. Yes, it can fill you up momentarily. But there has never been a time in my life, and remember therapy session, my personal experience only, where through the laying on of hands, my life has been transformed for good. I know that there's only one person who can do that and it's Jesus Christ through the empowering of his Holy Spirit. So that's the point of part one. Which is good, eh? Because you're like, man, I'm glad it's God and not Brooke's sermon. Phew. 
Alright? Now, if you think that was full on, this is a little bit more full on. <laughs> part two. So part one today is Confessions of a Recovering Christian is we can't change church, we can't change society, we need God to change us. We can't tell God to change us, can't manipulate God to change us, can't get God to change us through others. It's totally up to him. Stink, basically. Um, part two are the three lies I've believed. Three lies I've believed in Christianity. So lie number one, is that significance is found in ministry. Now this links back to what I was saying. Ministry is essentially, how do we change church? How do we change society? How do we change other people? How do we minister to other people? How do we proclaim the gospel? How do we do all that stuff? Line number one is that in all that stuff, there's some sort of significance. I love Luke 17, 33. And I've just changed it a little bit. You're allowed to do that with scripture, eh? Are you allowed to do that? Um, I've changed some words. So here's my version of Luke 17.33. says, Whoever tries to keep his ministry will lose it. And whoever loses his ministry for me will gain it. I'm not talking about pastoral ministry in a, in a church sense. So I'm talking about your calling. Whoever tries to keep his calling will lose it. Whoever loses his calling for my sake will gain it. Number one lie I've believed is that significance is found in the ministry. And you know what it does? It means that people get together and, you know, I really encourage you to go and just stalk one of your friends on Google Earth and just go through the satellite process on Google to get God's perspective on things. And, you know, I find it really interesting that the majority of sort of this Christian thing is like we'll get together and we'll get in these holy huddles and we'll like pray for 90 minutes before a meeting. So there's like 15 of us in a man-made building praying that the God of the universe will somehow miraculously come in his tangible presence into this space in 90 minutes' time. And then we all arrive together and we pray and we focus and we... And we're really intent on, God, would you come to this little building on this little island, on this little country, at the bottom of the earth for this 90 minutes? And the majority of our prayer actually rests around that. We pray for God to open doors in ministry. We pray for God to open doors when we're doing the stuff we think he wants us to do. Maybe God wants you to ask him how he's been lately. Oh, what do you mean, Brooke? Well, maybe you could say to God, Hey, God, how's it going? Um, Actually, pretty stink at the moment, Brooke. What do you mean, stink? You died for humanity and, you know, you're God. You're like, you're not just a super Jesus Christian. You are super Jesus um, yeah, I'm just, I'm a bit sad today. Why are you sad, God? I'm sad of all the babies I've got with me up here. Why are you sad about the babies, God? Well, because you guys don't want them. You keep sending them up to me. No one's talking about it. 
you're really upset that two men love one another, but no one wants to get up and talk about mums killing their babies because that's a human right. I've got rights too, I'm God. My right was to think that child up. Significance is not found in mission, people. It's found in getting to know who God is. He has a personality. He is a person. We're created in his image. He has feelings. And it's not as if when Jesus died on the cross, suddenly just the blood of Jesus covers all of God's feelings off. Like 2,000 years ago, something happened. Like It's like my dad saying to me, you know, no matter whatever you do, son, I will always forgive you and I will always love you. Now, my dad said statements like that to me. So then when I say something to my dad that's really hurting to him, is he just like, I told Brooke a couple of years ago that I love him no matter what and I forgive him no matter what, so it's all good? He's hurt. Of course he's hurt. And when we find significance in the ministry, it's like we've always got petitions to God. We've always... We're always sending letters his way. We're always going with requests to him. We never get to know him. That's why I'm unchanged after 15 years. Haven't got to know the person I'm meant to spend eternity with. Don't know a whole lot about his nature. Confused about it, actually. Been told a whole variety of things by a whole bunch of his kids. Told myself a whole bunch of things, too. Don't really know what he's like don't really like spending time with him either unless I really, really need something. And I find if I have to spend time with him, not focusing on anything else except just spending time with him, I mean not focusing on glorifying him, worshipping him, asking him for something, praying for some one of his kids, I really just don't know what to do with him. I think significance is found when we actually learn how to have a relationship like Adam and Eve had in the garden with God. Like Enoch had with God. Enoch's calling. Wasn't that incredible, all the stuff he did? <laughs> Significance is not found in mission. That's, that's what I've realised. Significance is found in him, in getting to know him, spend time with him. My se- the second lie, and when I say lie, because I'm a controversial preacher, basically what I'm meaning is misinterpretation of truth, right? Um, But lie will do. (laughs) My second lie that I've believed is that my sin is the problem. That my sin as a Christian is the problem. And, you know, this occurred to me about two years ago when uh, I was coming to church, I was coming to preach, I was doing, you know, the sin audit as we all do, you may be familiar with it, you know, searching your heart for the things you've done wrong. And if you're anything like me, most of the time I feel like I've done something wrong, even if I didn't. It might be that my brother always blamed me for the stuff he did wrong growing up. I don't know if it's conditioning or something else. But what it's meant is that when I come to church, as the pastor, as the person meant to, reaching, meant to be reaching out to others, um, I just feel condemned, I feel guilty, I feel... Um, shameful, and it's not because I've sinned. But I'm looking for sin like there is a sin there, like there's something wrong with me, like my sin is the problem. And you know, I come to church and I hear these things like, you know, um, you can never repay the debt, you can never repay the debt, you can never repay the debt, you can never repay the 
step, and I get that what's trying to be said is that how great is the love of God who loves you, and I have to build up that you can never repay the debt so you understand that God loves you no matter what. But all I hear is you can never repay the debt. That's all I've heard my whole Christian life. I just live under this cloud of sin when I'm meant to be liberating others from sin through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because really, it just I just keep reminding myself over and over and over again in any Christian circle that I'm a sinner. Get told the whole time. And the second lie I've believed is that my sin is the problem. Do you know, there's a guy by the name of Constantine in 1313 AD, and he was the first um, lord or governor in Rome to declare freedom of religion. And what happened after that time, there was such a boom in Christianity that all the pagan temples were handed over to the Christians. And when they handed the pagan temples over to the Christians, the state then realized that they could have power over the people through Christianity. And so through that process, they're like, well, if we set up confession, then what we will do is this corporate system of sin that oppresses the poor, that oppresses the lonely, that oppresses the weak, we can put to the background and to the foreground we can put individual sin. The fact that a beggar stole a loaf of bread, a mother who leaves her baby at a doorstep, And we'll keep the people in line by getting them to come to confession every week and confessing these sins. And so what happened there became the shift from what the system of sin was to individual sin. And that a confession theology was built around sin as a major tenant of what we focus on in Christianity from men. You know, this so messed with me, right? This so messed with me, me being sinful, that I had to go back and actually, without talking to anyone, without hearing anyone else's views on it, no theologian, no Christian I respect, I just wanted to look through the scriptures and go, okay, I'm going to read the Bible through the lens of sin and just see what I discover. This is what I discovered. In the Old Testament, Jesus rebukes sin primarily in a corporate sense, over the nation of Israel. Individuals are not punished. The nation is punished. Corporate sin is what he's concerned with, right through the books. You can look through the books of the prophets. You can look look through the um, historical text of the nation of Israel, and it's all corporate. And the only time that an individual is punished is when they bring the whole into deception. Ammon keeping the gold, going into um, the land of Canaan. Because God said not to keep the gold. God said a curse will come on the people. If anyone kept the gold, he keeps it. The people are cursed. Therefore, Ammon is punished because of what it meant for the people. But largely, the Old Testament is entirely concerned with the corporate sin and repentance of the nation of Israel. The nation turns away, the nation turns back. The nation turns away, the nation turns back. You come into the New Testament, the Gospels, and what you see is it's exactly the same with Jesus. 
Jesus, when he rebukes sin, he actually looks to the system of religion and he goes, you brood of vipers with your system of religion, punishing, enslaving, and oppressing the people. I'm going to make a whip and I'm going to drive you out of my place. But then a woman naked caught in the act of adultery, like literally caught in the act, can be pulled out the front of a crowd. And Jesus points the fingers at all the people who pointed her out. And then when there's no one left, she says, he says, is there anyone left to condemn me? Uh, He says, has anyone condemned you? She says, there's no one left to condemn me but you, Lord. He says, neither do I condemn you. Go away and sin no more. Well, hang on a minute, Jesus. This is adultery. This is quite a serious matter. We need some counselling there. I mean, what? Is she going to go back to her husband? Is she not? Is her husband going to come to you through this? Like, what's the redemptive story in all of it? Well, I don't... Jesus didn't really say anything about that. The woman at the well. You've been married five times and the man that you're with is not your husband. Come and drink of me. You'll never go thirsty again. That woman became a great evangelist and went back and led her village to Jesus and... You can go to their village today and they are Christians. Wasn't a lot of repentance from the woman of the well. She didn't get down on her knees and repent for everything she did wrong. She was like sort of filled with hope and love and felt accepted. See, Zacchaeus, this little short dude up a tree, rich, taking money from everyone, and Jesus says, Hey, Zach, I've dinner with you, bro. All right, mate. We go there and Jesus is sitting there having a really awesome meal and it must have occurred to Zacchaeus, man, all those people out there paid for this meal. He's probably not impressed by that. Hey, Jesus, I'll give half of my goods away, bro. Okay, Zach. All right, mate. Hey, if I've wronged anyone, Jesus, just so you know, I'll, get, I'll repay them four times. All right, mate, let's just, let's just have dinner. Let's keep the conversation going. See, with individuals in the, in the Gospels, Jesus was just so easy about sin. With the Pharisees and Sadducees, you see fire in his eyes. Then hang on, Brooke, hang on. What about the Apostle Paul? You know, it's really his writings that really get me. You know, and, and he was called of the Lord to put these writings in of how we actually function in church. Well, if you look through the epistles, you'll see that namely the letters rebuke the corporate church, the church of Corinth. Who's the letter written to? Not an individual. The church of Corinth, the church of Ephesus, even the vision that John has in Revelation, it is to the churches. And you know what? This whole funny theology around women, when the women are, when those women are pointed to who are Um, speaking in services, the reason that they are told they cannot speak is because, again, their heresy is bringing the corporate whole into heresy. It's not a woman issue at all. And these loser theologians for thousands of years have been oppressing women in the church because they don't understand sin doctrine. Now, I'm guessing when you arrived here today, You weren't thinking about the starving children in Gisborne. I'm thinking it was probably like the last thing on your mind that 
New Zealand's just forgotten about the east coast of the North Island and doesn't care. I'm guessing on, on your trip to church today, you weren't thinking about Christchurch and the fact that because it's not on the news, there's probably still a whole bunch of people struggling down there, a whole bunch of people with no houses, whose insurance companies are stalling and stalling over and over and over again, and that maybe they could use the church's help. And I'm thinking that when we started singing the Lord's Prayer, not me, not you, not any of us, started repenting on behalf of the sins of the nation of New Zealand for the children of the East Coast in Gisborne or our elderly in Christchurch who are staring down another winter without adequate heating or adequate housing. I'm guessing that just like me, for 15 years you were thinking about the fact that you don't really feel good enough yourself. That you hope that today you can get filled up again with God but because you didn't have a quiet time this morning or yesterday or Friday. Or you watched a movie you shouldn't have watched three nights ago. Or you spoke to a partner out of turn. Something like that. And I'm not Jesus, but I'm just saying that I think if he was here, he'd be like, Neither do I condemn you. Go away and sin no more. But you know, when you come together, think about the system, the systems of oppression, the corporate systems of oppression. And I want to say here that your sin matters, and it matters for this reason. And my sin matters, and it matters for this reason. That if I don't deal with my sin, it contributes to the system that oppresses the whole. But if you want emphasis biblically on sin, it's to the whole, not the individual. And that's the second lie I've believed. Finally today, the third lie I've believed is that... um, Man, this has been hard to speak actually. Um, the third lie I've believed is that I'm meant to deny myself as a Christian. It's been the most misinterpreted theology I've ever been taught. Because actually, what I was meant to hear was, Brooke, you're meant to deny your old self. But that's not what I heard, see, just like the you can never repay the debt, you can never repay the debt, you can never repay the debt. What I heard was, deny yourself. Deny who Brooke Turner is. I've heard it my whole life. And it's been reinforced every time I've got up to speak because people say things like, I pray that Brooke won't speak, that it'll be God who speaks through him. Which reaffirms that Brooke is worthless and God is everything. And because I was a high school dropout and I was smoking drugs and drinking and driving and scoring girls instead of doing academic work and I'm a failure academically, or at least I was, um, then I got involved in ministry and ministry was all that I was good at. I realised the first thing I learned in ministry was that I had to deny myself. So anything that was good that happened was God But anything that was bad that happened was Brooke. 
So I've just had 15 years of bad experiences. So when it happened really well, at the end of it, we don't come up and go, you know, Clay, you were amazing these past two years as a pastor. Without you, I mean, Jesus is great, mate, but seriously, just I want to let you know, Clay McGregor has been amazing. We don't hear that. Hey, Clay, God's really used you the last two years, mate. How do we feel in a relationship if someone uses you? How do you feel in any intimate relationship if you're just being used? Do you trust that relationship? I don't. How do you feel about a person? Well, let's talk about it like this. I'm a father. How does it feel that, I, that Katie and I decide to have Evelyn, that we raise her up and we see all these talents and abilities and this unique identity in her, then she reaches a certain level of maturity and we say, Evelyn, you need to deny yourself because it's not about you, it's about Jesus. And so it's nothing to do with you and you might want to think about like sacrificing your dancing or your singing or your CDs or your clothing or whatever it may be to Jesus because otherwise you're just selfish. That might sound really harsh, but that's actually the theology we've taught. And that if anything good happens in your life, Evelyn, it's Jesus. And if anything bad happens in your life, it's your sin. So what's my identity? Fifteen years after being in pastoral ministry, I'm just still a sinner. Don't feel much like a son. Don't feel much like a lover. God wants you to embrace your true self. It's not Jesus speaking up the front today. It's Brooke Turner. He thought me up. He formed me in my mother's womb. And you know what? When God in Psalm 139, 44 says, you are fearfully and wonderfully made, I don't think anything in the way that he created me to be in terms of my personality, my looks, my body, anything was a mistake. I don't care what you say to me about sin, oh, it's fallen, da-da-da-da-da. I just don't believe that it was a mistake. I believe that God was in that. And I don't see God, after the fall, saying to the lavender, Hey, lavender, you're no longer lavender. It's all me. The only way you can survive, lavender, is to give glory to me. Don't you dare give the scent of a lavender. Hey, Rose. Rose, you're in a lavender setting. You're actually a lavender. But you're not a lavender at all. You're actually me. Rose and lavender, you're me. You're God. Oh, but we've had a bad season. The scent smells a bit funny. Oh, no, you're lavender and rose. That's who you are. See, this denying yourself business, what it's done is it's created timid Christians with identity complexes all over the world. All don't know who we are. We think we know who God is, but we've just been wearing a dress. If we take the dressing off, we don't actually know who he is either. So let's look at the facts. We don't know who God is and we don't know who we are. 
Because we've been denying ourselves and pretending that God's changing us. I'm just not going to deny myself anymore. I'm going to embrace myself. I'm going to embrace who Brooke is. I don't care if this is the last time I speak publicly. Probably is. I'm embracing who God made Brooke Turner to be. And this is what I've realized, right? People give you this commandment. They say, a new commandment I give you. Now, after the, um, before Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan to the rich young ruler, you know, a new commandment I give you, that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, your strength, and you love your neighbor as yourself, right? And so basically we've built a theology on loving God and loving others. And we say that the first thing we're meant to do is to love God, right? First and foremost, you're meant to love God. But guess what? You can't love someone you don't know. So how on earth, and John 3.16 says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believed, not loved, whoever believed, just sort of thought maybe it's possible in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Hey, I've heard this story about a God who came to earth and died for me and I've heard that he actually loves me without condition and that he doesn't want to change me. In fact, he actually thought me up. He created me in my mother's womb. And when he looked at me, he said I was good. Just like the seventh day of creation, he looked at my little body my little newborn body, and he said, look at that beautiful child that we've made together. So you can't love God and love others unless you know that you're loved. And it begins with knowing that you're loved by God. And you cannot love yourself unless you know you're lovable. So until you know that God loves you without condition, totally, absolutely, you cannot love yourself. And if you cannot love yourself, you cannot love others or God back. Because the God who created you, you don't love his creation, you are incapable of loving him back. And if you can't love yourself, you're incapable of loving others because if I can't really love the true Brooke, I can't see with eyes of faith to see the true Kirk. I can't actually see who he really is. So I can pretend in my Christendom to love him. Oh, brother, I just love you so much. Such an awesome guy. Those times at Zeal, bro, they were amazing. I know I haven't called you in a while, but man, we should catch up. Please. Let's get rid of the tokenism. I think God's sick of the tokenism with him too. I am loved, therefore I can love my true self. Therefore I can look at the brook that God created me to be and go, man, this brook is amazing. I need to invest in this brook. I need to do all that I can to let this brook that God created come out. In fact, my name has meaning. I'm a babbling brook. I just need to babble over and over and over again. Obviously, God named me for that for a reason. I just need to go around the world babbling where one or two or ten people will listen. I just need to love Brooke. 
man, I love being able to love Brooke. And you know, being able to love Brooke means that I can love Clay. It means I can love Evelyn. It means I can love Alexa. It means I can love Katie. It means I can love Scott. It means that when I lead, I'm not trying to get everyone to go my way. Because I don't want lavenders to turn into roses. I hope today that what you've learned is that therapy is best done in confidentiality. (laughs) But also, hopefully, you've realised two things. Number one, that you can't pretend that God's changed you or transformed you when he hasn't. But the only true and sure truth that is worth knowing is that every single one of us needs a supernatural experience like Peter had at Pentecost. And you know the refinement of God and the way he's influenced me and changed me through my relationships and people who I've submitted to as leaders over me and people who he's brought me along and my personal times with him, all of that is still valid but it's not transformation. So I need God to transform me. Second thing I hope you've learned is this. Is that when you arrive today, God, or when you go out the door, God's not thinking about your sin and wondering how long it's going to take for you to recognize the sin that you just committed or committed a while ago that you need to talk to him about. That God's actually really hoping that you realize the person he created you to be. That he dreamed up. If if he was an artist, every one of us was a painting. Put the paintings on the wall, from wall to wall to wall to wall to wall to wall to wall. Not one of them would be the same. And no other human being would be able to understand the painting like he can, so I need to know that I'm lovable by him first in order to love myself. It takes God to love God. I pray that those two truths stay with you. And I pray that this talk doesn't fizzle out into hot air, but plant something in you that transforms you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we just thank you that when all is said and done, we cannot control, manipulate, predict, or choose how and when you work, you move, you speak. one thing we know God is that the message of Christian hope is a God who loves his kids and a God who's willing to do anything to transform his kids 
not replace them, transform them to be the kids he created them to be. So I pray our eyes would open with wonder again, Lord. Pray our hearts would be filled with hope. I pray the dormant parts of us that we have rejected would rise to the surface. I pray that we would experience true love. Because in experiencing true love, we experience you. Jesus. Yeah, I don't care what he says. It wasn't just Brooke. God was speaking all over that. And yeah, he's so right to change. We desperately need his Holy Spirit. He affects the change in us. And so right now we just want to reach out to him. And we want to spend some time just engaging with him. As Brooke said, it's, it's only in really knowing him that we're going to become more like him. So we just, we just want to sing some songs and just use this as a vehicle just to reach out to him and be in his presence now and just want to offer this this time to you now to do that.